today I'm going to start a brand new series, and the first message in the series is going to be a little bit unusual. If you're a guest here today, understand that, that I'm going to set some groundwork for what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. So it will be a little bit unusual. Now, I'm going to go very fast today. I'm going to have a lot of quotes and different things we're going to look at. You will not have time to write all those quotes down. And so, as I periodically do, I have prepared a full set of detailed notes. If you would like the notes, if this piques your interest today, after the service, you can leave uh, the main auditorium and go to our resource table, and there will be a copy of notes there that have all the quotations and everything I'm going to share with you today. So, I want to tell you that so you don't panic and and you're wondering, oh, I've got to get all this done, got to get it all done. Uh, Just relax. And what I'd prefer you to do today is just kind of listen to what we're going to talk about, because what we're going to talk about... About today is going to lay the groundwork for why the series we're going to is so important, but also why it's going to be such a challenge to fulfill what we're going to talk about. So you ready to go? Paul, who was one of the most dramatic converts from Judaism to Christianity in the first century, and, and a great Christian who wrote a great deal of what we call the New Testament portion of our Bible today, Paul, in a letter to the Romans, that was circulated then later among all the churches, even up today, because it's part of our New Testament, makes a scathing condemnation on humanity. He says in Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has freely shown it. In other words, right off the bat, he starts out the whole message in which is the most theological book in the Bible, by the way, for the New Testament. He says God's wrath is being revealed because humankind has suppressed what God has said is true and instead have chosen to go our own way. He says, but that's not acceptable because because God has clearly demonstrated to all humanity that he exists and that he's there. Say, well, how has he done that? goes on to say it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, just as we look at the creation, as we look at the beauty of the world that we live in, here in South Florida, I I, I never tire of the beautiful sunrises and sunsets. They are gorgeous here. And every time I see them, I'm drawn to God who created it all. I was driving home the other night, and there was this stunning rainbow that, that just was right over my housing development. I mean, just brilliant rainbow. And I was reminded that God, after the flood, said, I put my bow in the sky. And so... God's reality is everywhere. And so he says, therefore, humankind is without excuse. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. In other words, what Paul is saying, he's saying, you know what's happened to us? We've got so full of ourselves that we think we know more than God. In fact, we don't want God in the picture anymore. We can handle it. God, in fact, in many times, in many cultures, they've just gotten rid of God. Said there is no God. And so God says, that is a very foolish line of thinking. But that's where the world is today. 
Now, we see that God is right that all that's foolishness because as we look at philosophy, human philosophy throughout the ages, it keeps changing. It's radically changing. It says, well, this is the way we should go. No, this is the way we should go. Then that changes. No, this is the way we should go. And through history, the philosophers have been bumping heads. They can't find out what's real and what's wise and what really we should, we should invest ourselves in and embrace as reality. Yeah, like sophism that goes back to the days of Socrates. Sophism said there, there is no absolute truth. And in fact, two opposing views can be equally valid. And they took a very skeptical view towards religion and morality. Then you had skepticism, the skeptics saying that that we cannot really understand the inner substance of truth, and so therefore the only way to have inner peace within ourselves is not to judge anything. We should just be skeptical of everything. Don't judge anything because we're never going to really know what's real or not. Then we got the hedonism. That's the, the philosophy that The chief aim of man is to enjoy pleasure. And therefore, we should act in a way that brings pleasure to ourselves. Whatever pleases you, that's what you ought to do. Ancient philosophies that still are practiced a lot today. Then you get to the the, the more modern times. We had nihilism, which says that the only way for society to progress, the only way for society to move forward is just we got to get rid of any principles dealing with religion or morality. That's thus holding us back from becoming who we can really become as a human race. And so we need to get rid of religion. We need to get rid of morality. Then you had existentialism. They come alongside. No, they said, in fact, the, the really only reality in the world is what we experience individually because everyone's experience is his or her own, own reality. And so, therefore, whatever your experience is, is real, whatever your experience is in, well, that's, that's life for you. Then we get into modernism. You know, modernism takes it a step further and says, well, that's true, but, but really the only truth that can be absolutely embraced is scientific truth. See, because anything outside the scientific fact and the scientific method, you can't rely on that. And so all these philosophies, and we see them, and this is just a sampling of many of the different human philosophies through the times and the centuries, they're all bumping heads and saying, no, this is the way, 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 no, this is the way. They can never come to agreement on anything except, did you note that they all want to get rid of God? They all want to get rid of religion. They don't want to have that as a controlling influence in their lives. Why? Because that brings accountability for the way that we live. And we don't want accountability. We just want to do it however we want to do it. Now, the philosophical culture that we live under today is called postmodernism. That's the culture of today. Now, let me set a little bit of philosophic background for you here because it's going to be important where we're going. So don't tune me out. Listen, because this is going to be important for where we're going. Now, under postmodernism, it's a philosophy that once again affirms no objective or absolute truth, especially in matters of religion. In other words, there is no truth. You can't know truth. When confronted with a claim regarding the reality of God or some religious precept, the classic postmodernist will respond this way. They'll say, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. That may be true for you, that's okay, but that's not true for me. Now, it's not saying, well, that may be your opinion. It says, that's not true for me. That's not truth in my life. So they're saying, you can't know. There's, there's no absolute standards, no absolute truth. Now, there's several dangers inherent within postmodernism. Because remember, Scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. 
See, that's the danger. That we can get aboard with all these things, and they sound good, they sound fair, they sound logical, but if they are not in concert with what God has revealed, then we are going in a direction that's going to lead to destruction, if not in this life, certainly in the life to come. So there's some dangers. One is the idea of relative truth. Again, is there any relative truth? Now, one of the, the leading philosophers that that dealt with the idea of relevant truth was a guy named Immanuel Kant. And he argued that true knowledge of God is impossible. You cannot really know God or anything about God. Therefore, he created a system that divided facts from faith. There's facts and then there's faith. And according to Kant, facts have nothing to do with faith. And therefore, the result of that was that matters, spiritual matters, were assigned to the realm of opinion. And only empirical sciences were allowed to speak of absolute truth. In other words, anything about religion, well, that's just your opinion. And that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. See, again, what is truth? And Kant says the only thing that we can rely on as real truth truth is what can be tested with the scientific method. Anything else is just somebody's opinion. While modernism believes in absolutes and science, the Bible, God's special revelation, was evicted from the realm of truth and certainty. He said, you can't believe the Bible. The Bible is just a bunch of opinions of men, and it's outdated, it's archaic. You should not base your life upon it. Now, that leads to a second danger, which is a loss of discernment. If there's no objective and absolute truth, then everything becomes a matter of personal interpretation. That may be true for you, but that's not true for me. It's how you interpret. In fact, they use an illustration of an author who writes a book. And under postmodernism, the author's interpretation of her own book, his own book, doesn't necessarily represent reality. That's not the proper interpretation. The proper interpretation is held by whatever interpretation the reader gives to the book. So the author says, this is what I believe, but the reader says, no, 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 that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. When I read, this is what I get. This is what I believe. So there's no distinction. There's no standard. There's no way to pin anything down to say, this is true, that is false. It's, it's a matter of opinion, personal preference. And this especially applies in the postmodern culture to faith and religion. You can't pin it down. There's no absolute. Now, that leads then to the idea of pluralism. Pluralism is this. If absolute truth does not exist... And if there's no way to make meaningful right-wrong distinctions between different faiths and religion, then the natural conclusion is what? All beliefs must be equally valid. That means there is no one way. No matter what faith experience you choose, it's equally valid. It's the same as any other one. In fact, it would go on to claim that with pluralism, no religion has the right to pronounce itself true and other competing faiths false or even inferior. 
Sin or postmodernism. Christian faith is just one of many faiths. And you have Buddhism, you have Judaism, you have Islam, you have Shintoism, you have Hinduism. You have all these different, and, and there's a smorgasbord of religions. And in postmodernism, it says every one of them are of equal value. In fact, if you declare that your choice of religion is the only religion that, in fact, you are intolerant. You are a bigot. See, there's a brand that comes with it. As we begin a series today that says, Jesus, the only way? Can, can you see how that goes against the grain of the world that we live in, of the culture that we live under, of the accepted principles of our culture. Now, now you, you may be a little older here today, and so this kind of sounds a little strange to you, but the younger you are, the more that you have been influenced, and in some cases even indoctrinated by postmodernism, to believe that there is no absolute truth. And, and that you cannot make a stand on anything. And that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. The, the question is, is there truth? Are they right? Is Jesus really the only way? Or is Jesus just another way? If there's a way at all. Because so many, increasingly number of people don't even believe that God exists and it's all something made up to be a crutch to humankind who is afraid about death and gives us some false sense of security after this life. Now, none of this should take us by surprise where we're living in. Because Scripture warns us 2,000 years ago, in the first century, Scripture tells us this is what's going to happen. Paul, writing to a preacher apprentice named Timothy in his second letter to Timothy in the New Testament. It's a manuscript called 2 Timothy. In chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Now, what he's talking about is the teaching of Christ, the teaching that we now call Christianity. He said, The time's coming when people aren't going to put up with that anymore. It says, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So he's saying, basically, here's what he's saying. Listen, in the end times before Jesus comes back, this is what the world's going to look like. People aren't going to want to listen to sound doctrine, sound theology, sound truth, things that come from the inspired book that we know now as the Bible. They're not going to put up with that. Instead, they're going to gather around them. They're going to search out teachers who teach what they want to believe. They're going to gather teachers around them that teach the lifestyle that they want to embrace. They're going to seek some religion that's convenient for their personal worldview and their personal idea of what truth is and what truth isn't. Now, if they're correct and there is no absolute truth, there's nothing wrong with pursuing that. that. That would be reasonable. But if there is absolute truth, and if that absolute truth 
is recorded and revealed in the Bible, that's a whole other matter. Again, what's the psalmist say? There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to what? What? Death. That's pretty serious. 1 Corinthians 3.18, Paul again writing, now to believers in the city of Corinth. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Now, in culture, in the news, in the media, in the Christian, as far as the Christian community, evangelicals, people like us who believe that the Bible is the word of God, we're considered fools, openly considered fools. You're idiots for believing that kind of stuff. You're not 21st century thinkers. You guys, really? Now, but from God's perspective, he says, listen, those of you think that you're wise from a human philosophical position, calling people who embrace what I have declared over centuries and millennia of time to be true and say that's foolishness, maybe you want to rethink it and become one of those fools. That's what it's saying. Because it goes on to say, Verse 19, 1 Corinthians 3, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they're futile. God looks down and he looks at sophism. And he looks at skepticism. And he looks at, at, at uh, hedonism. And he looks at, at uh, existentialism and, and modernism and postmodernism. And he looks at it and he goes, what are you thinking? Look at what you're doing to yourself. You're running around and you don't know where to go and you don't know what's true. You don't know what's up. You don't know what's down. You don't know what's east. You don't know, you don't know anything. And you're running around thinking that you're so wise. See, the truth of the matter is, who has the final voice? God has the final voice. It's not going to be Socrates that we stand before in judgment. It's not going to be Aristotle or Plato or Immanuel Kant. It's going to be God who we stand before when this life is over or when Jesus comes back. And God's saying, if you think yourself to be wiser than I am, maybe you should stop, pause, and give it a second thought. Now, I realize today that we have a whole lot of different people that are assembled in this service and all our services. And we honor that. Wherever you're at, we honor that. We respect you. We love you. We're glad that you're here. And what I'm going to ask is, during this series, for you to just open your mind and listen to what we're going to say. Because in the end, you have the absolute freedom to choose whatever you want to choose. You, you, you do. But what Scripture says is, listen, If you have now brought yourself to the place where you think that what man says is wise is really the truth, then at least give this another thought. Now, here's the challenge for us in the church. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Again, all of this confusion in the cultural, in the philosophical world today should not take us by surprise. Because really the things of God are out there. I mean, things like salvation, that all you need to do for eternal life is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Lord, he's the only way, and and, and that he died on the cross and was buried and resurrected on the third day. And and if you'll just confess that faith to God, then God's going to forgive your sins. I mean, that's crazy, right? I mean, how could it be like that? Why would God have it like that? 
You know, things like, it's, like tithing, that we should give 10% of our, our offering to the Lord, 10% of our earnings. And if we give that 10%, uh, then God's going to cause our 90% to go further than we can make 100% of our income go. That's crazy, man. Why, why would we do that? See, the natural man can't understand that because they're, they're spiritually discerned. And until we have the Holy Spirit living within us to help us to understand what Scripture reveals, then we're not going to understand it. But we who have trusted Christ immediately, Scripture says, are indwelt by the presence of the Holy Spirit. All right, so how are all these folks who are honestly, legitimately pursuing postmodernism? And it sounds good. It sounds fair. It sounds just. I, I shouldn't think of, of your way as, 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 the, as wrong and my way is right. And, and you know, we should all just live life the way that we think is best. And that sounds right. It sounds just. If you leave God out of the picture, but if God is God, and there is life after this life, and it's God's standard by which humankind will be judged, then I think we owe it to ourselves to give a very close examination of that claim. That's what we're going to be doing. This is where we come into the picture as believers, as people who have found Jesus and trusted Jesus. The reality is Jesus found us, though, right? He came and sought us. We didn't go seeking him. But anyhow, we've trusted Christ as our Savior. Here's where we come into the picture. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter, one of the original disciples of Jesus, says this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. He says, all right, listen, all you folks who are believers, you follow Jesus, you need to always be prepared to be able to articulate, to be able to give a proper response for why you believe what you believe. You should be able to do that at a moment's notice. Now understand, this critical declaration targets two critical considerations. The first that it targets is our primary Christian purpose. What is our primary purpose as Christians, as believers? Well, Jesus told us in his very last words after his resurrection, before he ascended back up into heaven to be with God, Jesus told us what our purpose was. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, Jesus said this. This is his last words as, as he's floating up back to be, to be with God. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit is upon you, and you will be my what? You'll be my witnesses. Now notice, this. he says, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, when the power of God comes on you, it will come on you for the purpose of being witnesses. Now today, we get excited about the Holy Spirit. We get excited about speaking in tongues, and we get excited about healings and all this kind of stuff and all this other stuff. But the Holy Spirit came to empower us to be witnesses. That's why he came, to give us boldness to give us spiritual discernment, to know that what Jesus said about himself is true. That's why he came. Now, what are we supposed to witness about? Here's our message. Jesus said, you go tell the world this. As Jesus declared of himself in John 14, 6, you tell them that I said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the message. 
He says, that's what you need to go tell. Here's what you need to witness about me. I am the way. I am plan A and there is no plan B. That's what I need you to go tell everybody. That's why I died on the cross. I died on the cross so that every man, every woman from every age can have eternal life. Not because of them, but because of me. That's what I want you to go tell everybody. He tells them where to tell it. He says, you go tell that in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. In other words, he says, you take that message where you are right now. You're in Jerusalem. And so you start where you are right now. And you take it to Jerusalem and then to Judea, which is the province that Jerusalem was in. And then you go to Samaria, which was one of the neighboring countries. And then you take it. In fact, you just take it all over the world. Everywhere that you can put your foot on planet Earth, that's where you take this message. Now, let me personalize that. Now, all of us can't do that here today. We, we can't, we're not in Jerusalem. We can't go there in Judea, Samaria. But, but what he's saying to me, what he's saying to you, is he's saying, listen now. He's saying, you take this message that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To your world, your personal world. So in my personal world, Jerusalem would be my family. That's who I got to take it to first. I got to take it to my family. I got to make sure my family knows that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He says, then Judea, that, that's my extended family and my friends. That's my world. I, I have influence in their life. They know me. I know them. We can talk about things. So first I take it to my immediate family. Then I take it to my extended family, which is represented in Judea, and, and my friends, my close friends. And then Samaria. Samaria would be our neighbors, those living around us. Take it to them. And then it says, just take it wherever. That would be our colleagues at work and at school and, 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 and the, the, the hostess at the restaurant and, and, and the, the, the guys who come and, and, and collect our garbage at the street and everywhere. Just take it everywhere that we are. See, it's our world. My world's different than your world. Your world's different than my world. But God has challenged me to take this message about Jesus to everyone in my world. And he's challenged you to take it to everyone in your world. Now, remember I told you there's two critical targets in that proclamation that we should always be ready to give a defense for what we believe. The first is just to fulfill our primary Christian responsibility, our purpose, which is to tell everyone in our world that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Now, there is a growing second critical target, and that is this, our legal rights as Christians. Postmodernism is increasingly creeping into our American court system, as it has in other court systems around the world. This idea there is no truth, and in fact, for you to claim that your way is the only way, that's intolerant. That's being a bigot. You have no right to do that, and in fact, we are going to silence your ability to do that. <clears throat> the American Spectre, which is a conservative U.S. Uh, monthly magazine, under Eric Raspack said this, as the cloud of government regulations grows larger, a bloated government becomes increasingly bold in their attempts to restrict free speech and free exercise of one's faith. Since the trend of expansion of government activity at all levels shows no sign of abating, we can expect more religious liberty conflicts in coming years. In other words, what he's saying this. 
as government on the local level, on the state level, on the national level, as it begins to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and as government begins to invade more compartments of our life and take control of more areas of our life, here's what you can expect. You can expect that there will be increasing restrictions on the free expression of religious beliefs and religious practice. Now, if you say, well, yeah, that's some conservative rag that's putting that out. Well, consider an article in the Washington Post, hardly the bastion for conservatism. Jonathan Turley, under an article entitled, Shut Up and Play Nice, How the Western World is Limiting Free Speech. says, perhaps the most rapidly expanding limitation of free speech is found in anti-discrimination laws. Many Western countries have extended such laws to public statements deemed insulting or derogatory to any group, race, or gender. In other words, whenever you begin to say, well, God has revealed in Scripture this about a lifestyle or this about a life choice, increasingly now, because government's going to get bigger and bigger and invade more and more areas of our private lives, this is increasingly laws are going to come on the books established to limit what you're allowed to say, limit what you're allowed to teach. A pastor in Canada was not only fined, but he was enjoined or he had to sign a statement that he would never again speak about a biblical understanding, a biblical teaching of homosexuality in the Bible. In Sweden, there are anti-speech laws against anything that has to say from pulpits, not just in society, not just your opinion talking in a cafe, but any preacher preaching any sermons on things that negatively go against what the normal cultures of gender or race or anything. You can go to jail for that now. See, that's where it says everything is going. Attorney David Gibbs, Jr., from the Christian Law Association, who's been here at our church, and we support his son, uh, David Gibbs III. You've seen him come a lot of times. We've had him speak. Uh, Attorney Gibbs puts out every month a a newsletter, and I was reading his newsletter a couple months ago, and this just jumped off the page at me, and I said, holy cow. He says this, the courts of America play by a unique set of rules that both satisfy and defy logic. These rules are set to ensure fairness to everyone. They deem honesty, they demand honesty and consistency. They are meant to protect, but they can also be used to persecute. In many cases, the believer has not done so well. In other words, he says, we have a unique system of law and justice in our country. And that system demands honesty and integrity. It demands that. It says, but sometimes... That system gets out of whack, gets out of kilter. That, that's what a lot of the, the, the racial tension is about today, that, that there is an injustice in our justice system in the way certain groups are treated and condemned and jailed over other groups, see? Well, he's taking it to another level. He's saying, he's saying this is also bleeding over into the lives of people of faith. He goes on to say, for a long time, the, world, the word conviction was a do-all, catch-all world, all too often used carelessly to justify actions and beliefs. When I say conviction, like, well, it's my conviction that. I hold a conviction that this is right. I hold a conviction that the Bible says this. I have, that's what he's talking about. He goes on, often Christians explain why they do what they do simply by claiming to be motivated by a conviction. 
For example, Scripture might say, to spare the rod is the foil of child. In other words, the Scripture says that, that sometimes children act up enough that sometimes a spanking is the appropriate response. Well, look what's happened to that, huh? I mean, you spank today, you can lose custody of your children. I mean, according to today's standard, I was a child abuser. I spanked my children. According to today's standard, my parents were felons. I guarantee it. Okay, so, so I'm saying, well, it's my conviction. The Bible says that, to, to spare the rod. And understand, when, when we talk about that, by the way, let me just pause and say that. That's not a beating, folks. It's not done impulsively. It's not done out of anger. When it has to be done, there's a whole lot of things that can be done before that. I am in full agreement with that. But anyhow, I digress. I said, well, that's my conviction. By the way, he says, as he's dealt with a lot of believers, and, and his law firm deals specifically with cases that deal with the separation of church and faith and attacks against people of faith and churches of faith. That's what his law practice deals exclusively with, and there's more and more and more and more and more and more and more. Many years ago when he started his practice, he was here, and he said, a pastor called him and said, I'm being sued for preaching Christ. And he said, what? He says, you're not being sued for preaching Christ. No one's ever been sued for preaching Christ. You can't be. And he says, no, I'm being sued because of this. And he says, he says Pastor, you, you, you must be mistaken. That can't possibly happen here in the America. And he got, he said, well, I'll come and talk to me, and we'll talk about it. And he sat down, and he says he couldn't believe what he was hearing. And he says, since then, this has just escalated. He says, but <clears throat> very little sacredness often is with these convictions that Christians have today. In other words, there's not a real reason. They just say, well, that's what my church believes. Well, that's what my preacher said. That's what the Bible says, I guess. And, and so that's my conviction. He said, there's, there's really little, no sacredness. It's just an excuse sometimes that we throw out there. So therefore, he goes on. He says, now listen. He says, things are changing now. You better be aware of this. This is what caught my attention. He says, suddenly, all of that has been forced to change as Christians are faced with peering before judge and jury to prove prove their convictions, not to their satisfaction, but to the satisfaction of unbelievers. They said, be careful, believer, because here's how the courts are changing. <clears throat> now when you were brought in on some premise, and maybe it's because you spanked your child, and now you've got to appear before a court and a jury on child abuse charges, and you say, well, it's my conviction. He says, that's not going to work anymore. For you to say, well, that's my conviction. He says, now you're going to have to prove your conviction, not to your satisfaction, but to the satisfaction of a judge who's an unbeliever, to a jury who are filled with unbelievers. He goes on to say, in the courts today, Christians do not have to prove their right. They don't have to prove that. That is absolute truth. They don't have to prove that. Because remember, postmodernism doesn't believe in that sort of proof. So that would be hip, hip, hip hypocritical for them to do that. But let's just, it goes on to say, he goes on to say, but they must prove that what they claim to be convictions are in truth convictions and not merely preferences. Now, what does all that mean? Here's what Gibbs is saying. That increasingly, as we as believers are called into a legal situation because of an action that we took that we believe is biblical, that we believe is part of our faith. No longer can you just say, well, that's what my church teaches. No longer can you say, well, that's what the Bible says. You have to be able to articulate that conviction. 
You have to be able to give biblical evidence that you really believe that, and you're just not parroting something your pastor said, parroting something your church stands for, parroting something you read on the articles of faith for your church. You are going to have to be able to convince them, not that you're right, but that you stand on solid ground for believing what you believe. You are going to have to be able to articulate that. Now, look at Peter's admonition. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone asking you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, one, and the primary reason that he had in mind at that time was that we would fulfill our primary Christian purpose, and that is to be a witness of Jesus, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. But now, in our day, it has a whole new meaning, doesn't it? It means that now, as you come to the Bridge Church, And this church, if you're a guest here, we do believe that God's word is the inspired word of God. We do hold that God's premises are true. And we do embrace a biblical worldview and try to live our lives according to that view. We're not not radicals and we're we're not malicious or anything in that. But but we do believe that God is God and the Bible is the Bible. We need to be prepared now to be able to articulate Increasingly, as laws change, and as what's happened in Europe spread to Canada, and what's happening in Canada now will spread to the United States, depending on how things go. And we may find ourselves, and listen, guys my age, we're probably not going to face as much of it. But the younger you are here today, the more this is going to impact you in the future, what we're talking about. So now we're talking about Jesus, the only way. Well, let's say that that's, how many of you believe that? How many of you believe that Jesus is the only way? How how many believe that? Let me see your hands. Okay, all right. A lot of you do. Most of you do. And a few of you don't, that's good. That's okay. Thank you for being honest. Because I hope you'll come to this series so that you can learn about what we're going to talk about. So possibly that might alter your thinking, might give you something more to think about. But let's, let's take what we've talked about today. Let's say that we now are called somewhere down the road, hypothetical case, We're called down the road because we're teaching our children at home that Jesus is the only way. And that goes against postmodernism, says that you cannot claim that your religion is the only way. And now you're being challenged as a parent, as a grandparent, as a guardian of a child for filling their minds with hate propaganda that your religion is the only way. You are now going to have to be able to articulate. You don't have to prove that you're right. But you are going to have to be able to articulate why that is your conviction and not your preference. Now, how are you going to learn that? Come next week. (laughs) And we'll start helping you to get there. Listen, this is important. It's important to the lives of those people in our world that we can share with them intelligently and biblically why Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And the welfare of the future generations of our family may depend on us being able to do exactly that. Now, we're going to take communion as we end the service today. And as we do, I want us to be mindful that Jesus left this beautiful ceremony with us to demonstrate to us the extent that he was willing to go to provide us eternal life, to provide us 
the forgiveness of sin. And as our deacons, our ushers, as they come down with the, with the communion plates, I'm going to encourage you to first take a cracker and put it on your lap and then take a cup of juice and wait till we've all received and we'll partake of this together. But Jesus left us this ceremony so that we can be reminded that there is truth and that the truth centers around him. And that we can believe his words were true because he was willing to die for us, to die in our place so that we don't have to experience eternal death and separation from God. Now, you might be here today, and a lot of this is new to you. And that's okay, because it was new to every one of us here at one point in our lives. And we welcome you. We're glad you're here. And we understand that we have people coming from different perspectives and all that, and we celebrate that. And and again, we're glad that you're here. But we do believe, and we do hold us truth. And if you keep coming, you're you're going to see some of the reasons that we do. We do believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So what do we do with that? What's the word that Jesus has commissioned me as a believer, not just as a pastor, but just me as as a believer, like hundreds of other believers here today. He wants you to know that he loves you and that he wants to give you eternal forgiveness. He wants to give it to you. Paul, in that book we opened with, Romans, in chapter 10, verse 9, he says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says, listen, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to serve. All you have to do, here's what you've got to do. This is all I'm asking you to do. It's to humble yourself and say, you know, Jesus is the only way. He's Lord. And believe in your heart. What Scripture has revealed, what God has revealed through Scripture, that how Jesus died and was buried and on the third day rose again to conquer death, hell, and the grave. Jesus said it himself this way in John 5, 24. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He said, truly, truly. Can't you just see Jesus saying, truly, truly. He said, listen to me, listen to me. I'm telling you the truth. If you'll just believe in him who sent me, And believe my words, you'll not stand in judgment before God someday because you've crossed over from death to life. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. See, this is where... Biblical Christianity differs from all the other religions of the world. Because all the other religions of the world say something like this. You have to live a good enough life to appease God. You have to do enough good things so that your good things outweigh your bad things so that when you stand before God in judgment one day, God's going to look at your works and your life and he's going to say, okay, you did a pretty good job. I'm going to let you come in. Or maybe he'll say, you did a real good job and let you come in. Or he'll say, I don't know. 
Man, what a way to live. How unkind would God really be if that's what he had us? We would never know if we did enough. So he says, that's not how it is. It's a gift. It's something he gives us, and he gives it to us the moment we humble ourselves and say, you know what? It's not me. It's him. It's not what I do. It's what Jesus has already done. Bow your heads with me for just a moment. If you're here today and you've never taken that step, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, but right now the Spirit of God is is urging you to do that and saying what you're hearing is true. Not because Pastor Pete is is a persuasive public speaker, but because the Spirit of God now is, is bearing witness with you saying, this is truth, this is truth, believe this. Then right now you can receive this eternal forgiveness through a simple prayer that goes something like this. This is not an incantation. You can use it if you want to help form your words. But as I prayed as a, many years ago, Jesus I get it. I am a sinner and I need forgiveness. I'll never be able to do enough to earn eternal life with you. That's why you died on the cross for me. And so Jesus, today, I confess with my mouth, you are Lord. You are the only way. You are the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except you. I confess that with my mouth. And not only do I confess it with my mouth, I believe it in my heart. I believe that you rose from the dead, and I believe that without what you did for me, I am hopeless and I am helpless before God and before eternity. So today, I believe on the name of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, I believe on you as my eternal Savior. This day, I trust you. The Bible says in 1 John 5.13, These things I write to you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Look up at me. These little elements, as simple as they are that we hold in our hands, are a profound declaration to humanity that Jesus loved us so much that as he said that night, he was betrayed. And after giving thanks, when he took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. Then speaking of the blood that he was about to shed, Jesus said, this cup that I'm passing to you now is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Next week we get into the heart of taking on the question, Jesus, the only way? I know there are people in your world that need to hear this message. When you leave today, you can go back to our, our resource tables, and these are little invitations. There's hundreds and hundreds of them out there. They have the name of the series. They have a little description of the series on the back. They have our service times. Take some of these as invitations. and Go to a friend of yours and say, you know, we Christians believe that Jesus is the only way. What do you think about that? Well, I don't know. Some might think, well, I don't think a whole lot about that. We'll say, you know, that's an interesting. Why don't you come because... Our church, the Bridge Church, is starting a series next Sunday talking about why we believe that's true. Would you come with me? I'll take you to lunch after. How about that? Huh? Get some of these. Pass them out. There's this little book. Today when we talked about receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior and eternal forgiveness of sin. If you weren't ready to do that yet, and you, you don't quite understand it because this is all kind of new to you and you're trying to sort it out. Listen, before you leave, there's a little blue book on all of our racks back there that 
says, you can be sure. Take one of these books with you, free of charge. A little book, it'll walk you through what the Bible has to say about knowing how your sins can be forgiven and how when you pass from this life, you can know that heaven will be your home. Why don't you get one of those and take it with you?